following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. We can turn your Bibles to Romans 10. As you can see on the screen, our text for today is verses 1 through 8. And we'll read the text in a moment, but... You know, something that, uh, about kids um, that is both amusing and sometimes frustrating is how incapable they are of finding things. So, every parent has been there, you're getting ready to go somewhere and you tell your kid, go get your shoes. And they leave and a couple minutes later they come back and say, Dad, I don't have any shoes. And so, you walk them down the hall and walk in the bedroom and there in the middle of the floor are three pairs of shoes. How did you miss that? And, and they sincerely say, I don't know. Like, and it just blows their mind. Now, of course, sometimes I'm not much better. In fact, um, I was just standing back at the sound booth before the service and looking for, you know, waiting for Justin to hand me my microphone, and it literally was right under my nose. And uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, I couldn't find one of my belts, and I looked all over the house for my belt. I was getting frustrated. I was just about to go out and buy another one, and, uh, and then Heidi and I were in our bathroom one day, and she's like, is that your belt? And it was sitting right there on her dresser under my nose. And so, much of the time, we, we can kind of laugh about that and, and look at how we forget things and just kind of, it, it's interesting, it's funny, but our passage for today tells a tragic story about a whole nation that, that, that missed something very important, even though that important issue, that important gift, was right under their noses. Let's read Romans 10, verses 1 through 8. God's Word says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith which we are preaching. This passage tells the tragic story of how Paul's own people, the Jewish nation, had missed the greatest gift imaginable. And even though it was right under their noses, the gift here is God's offer of salvation in Christ. And it's a tragic tale. And it's also a sober warning for everyone in this room. That is it possible that I could be around the Bible around Scripture, around church, and miss this great gift of God. And once you're sure that that you have indeed 
received Christ, that this gift is yours, this passage should drive you to grieve for all the people around us who have heard this message, who are around this message, and have never really received it. And then we should be motivated to go after them and and share the gospel and and see them come to Christ. And, And Paul gets to those challenges by making two major assertions in our passage. And the first major assertion in verses 1 through 4 is that salvation is by faith, not by works. Now, I'd like to divide verses 1 through 4 into three basic challenges. And so the first challenge Paul gives is pray for the salvation of the lost. Now, Paul sets the example in verse 1. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now, who's he talking about here? Well, we know that he is talking about his fellow Israelites because he just talked at the end of chapter 9 about how they had stumbled over Jesus. And that's because uh, Jesus was not the Savior that the Jews were looking for. They were looking for a great king who would lead them to conquer the Romans. And Jesus instead showed up as the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sins of the world. As well, uh, His gospel demands repentance, submission to His Lordship. And the Jews weren't interested in that. They wanted to glory in their achievements, not humble themselves and depend on a Savior. And so they had stumbled over Christ. That's how chapter 9 ends, by lamenting Israel's rejection of Jesus. And so Paul responds to this Jewish rejection in verse 1 by expressing his passionate desire that God would do a work among the Jews and that many of them would be saved. And of course he says that that passion for his people drove him to pray that God would save them. And I think it's very significant that that this is where Paul goes on the heels of chapter 9. right? Because Paul just argued in in Romans chapter 9 that God's sovereign will determines who will be saved. And, and, And he went so far as to say that God is free to make some people for mercy and other people for destruction. And, and, and he says that we have no right to question God about it. That, that we are not in a position to stand in judgment on God. So you could look at Romans 9 and, and think, man, Paul's just a cold-hearted man and he doesn't love people, he doesn't care for their souls. And of course, sadly, some people have used Romans 9 to, to justify being apathetic about sharing the gospel, to be lazy about sharing the gospel. Of course, plenty of other people have said that that, that you can't possibly believe in the sovereignty of God and also have evangelistic zeal. So, so, So we can't believe in any of that stuff because it will kill people's heart for evangelism. But notice... That, that following on the heels of one of the strongest chapters in Scripture regarding the sovereignty of God is one of the strongest chapters in the Bible about our need to share the gospel. They, they come right next to each other. And, and so Paul's belief in the sovereignty of God did not dampen his passion for the lost or his efforts to reach them. And, and why is that? Well, well, it's because, very simply, Paul understood that God's secret will is God's secret will. 
And it's not mine to know, and I don't need to concern myself with understanding God's secret. Oh, I instead need to focus on my responsibility, which begins here with passionately praying that God would save the lost. And the Bible teaches everywhere that, that your prayers, your prayers are a vital link in how God saves people. Your prayers are important. And, and, so, and so Paul talks everywhere in his epistles and, and in, in the book of Acts about how he is praying that God would save people. And he urges the churches to join him in praying that God would do a mighty work to bring people to himself. And so I hope that, that Christian, you are zealous for the salvation of sinners and that your zeal drives you to pray that God would save them. You know, and, and so I, you know, every Christian, every Christian, if you or someone come to you and say, who are you burdened to reach for Christ? Who are you trying to reach for Christ? Every Christian should be able to rattle off a list. You know, these are the five people that I am really praying that God would save. And these are the people that I am trying to reach. And it could be, of course, a lot more than five. It could be 20, 30, however many you want it to be. And, and, and so we shouldn't just be burdened about them, though. We should be praying. James 5.16 says that the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. You know, so sometimes we look at lost people and like, man, they'll never get saved. I really hope someone reaches them. Maybe I'll share the gospel with them sometime. But God says that He works through our prayers. So, so praying for the salvation of the lost should be an important discipline of every Christian. Are you taking advantage? You know, are you regularly play, praying by name for the people in your sphere of evangelistic influence that God would save them? And of course, it's not enough just to sit in your closet and pray. And you need to go out and share the gospel. Talk to them about Christ. And, and, and pursue them. With, with, or urge them to believe on Christ the same way that you have. So, so Paul begins here with his burden for Israel, and then he follows by explaining his burden by, by telling the story of Israel's tragic rejection of the gospel. And the second challenge that, that I want to give then is that we must, uh, specifically for those who are not saved, the second challenge is pursue the only hope of salvation. Pursue the only hope of salvation. So Paul then says, for I testify about them, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Now again, Paul here is talking about his Jewish brethren. And, uh, and, but sadly, uh, their story here could, could be, has been repeated probably billions of times. And so this story in verses 2 and 3 provides a sober warning for, for all sorts of religious people who are scattered around our world and maybe even some very religious people who are in this room. And, 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 and so Israel's story, I think also as Christians, gives us just a helpful window into the blindness of so many people around us that, that we look at them and think, why don't they respond? Well, it's because they have the same blindness that the Jews had here. 
Now, it's interesting that Paul begins, though, by complimenting the Jews for their zeal for God. He says they have a zeal for God. And I think that's significant. It's helpful because, you know, sometimes as Christians, we, we can just paint every unbeliever with a dark, broad brush. You know, they're all just arrogant haters of God. And the Bible says that in some sense, they are proud rejecters of God. But that doesn't change the fact that, that many unbelievers around us have tremendous religious zeal. Of course, Paul was a prime example before he got saved. He says in our Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for the ancestral traditions. You know, so when Paul's going around persecuting the church, he is not lacking in sincere zeal. He thinks he's doing God's will. He thinks he is making himself right with God. But our text warns that, that sincerity and religious zeal alone don't make you acceptable to God. It's a really important idea to emphasize in our day because we live in a culture that, that says, as long as you're following your heart, you're good. If your heart's in the right place, it doesn't really matter what you believe or what you're doing. And, and, and many religious people are really committed to their faith. And, and so you ask them, do you believe you're going to heaven or not? And, and they, they think, I certainly have to be going to heaven because I am so zealous and and I care, and, and my heart is to please God, so certainly God accepts me. But, but verse 2, you know, and, and, and so you know, if that's your answer, do you believe you're going to heaven or not? And your answer would be something like, I certainly must be, because I have faith, and, and I'm trying to please God. Then verse 2 is an important warning for you that it says there that zeal is not enough. Now what does Paul say? He says, they have a zeal for God, but it is not in accordance with knowledge. So in other words, being sincerely wrong doesn't change the fact that you are wrong. And God won't overlook the fact that you are wrong if, if you, uh, just because you are zealous. So what is the foundation of your spiritual confidence? You know, you'd say, I believe I'm going to heaven someday. What is your answer as to why? Are you banking your soul, your eternity, on what you feel to be true? Or is your confidence rooted in the clear statements of Scripture? You know, I hope that, that if I were to ask you, do you know you're going to heaven someday, you, you could pull out a Bible and say, I know I'm going to heaven because the Bible says right here, this is the reason I can go to heaven and this is what I've done. Your confidence needs to be in the Word. And if not, hear what the Bible says and make sure that, that you are believing what the Bible says and responding rightly. And, and, and that's so important. Because verse 3 uh, then goes on to explain you know, how it is that, that so many people miss it. Why so many people end up on the wrong path. Verse 3 says, For not knowing about God's righteousness 
and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. That is a fascinating verse. You know, probably just about every believer in this room could, could read verse 3 and say, wow, he's talking about Uncle Dave. Or he's talking about Cousin Sarah or, or someone else that you know. Because that verse describes so many people. And it's built on a contrast between God's righteousness and man's righteousness. And what does Paul say? He says that his Jewish contemporaries were consumed with establishing their own righteousness. Now, what does that mean? That they're focused on establishing their own righteousness. Well, it means that Paul's Jewish contemporaries believed that the purpose of religion is to make yourself a good person. So, so we observe religious traditions. We, we do good deeds. We, we care for the poor. We, we give to charity. We, we, we go to church. We, we say our prayers. And if I do enough of those things, I establish my righteousness and God accepts me. And He blesses me. And someday, hopefully, He will take me to heaven. And that's what most of Jew, the Jews believed. And that's what most world religions teach. I mean, the whole purpose of religion in most people's minds is to establish your own righteousness. But God says that you can never be righteous enough to earn God's favor. You can't establish your own righteousness. I mean, look back at what he says in chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. Chapter 3, verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That passage is very clear. That, that you can't establish your own righteousness. And so what is so tragic about Paul's Jewish friends and about so many other people around us on a daily basis is that they are giving their lives, they're, they're, they're hoping for eternity in a fool's errand because they can't possibly establish their own righteousness. And neither can you. You might be a really wonderful person You've, you've taken care of your family. You're committed to things. You've you got integrity. You work hard. You're, you're honest. All those various things, very involved in church. But you will never be worthy of inheriting eternal life. Never. You can never be good enough. God is abundantly clear. So, so, so please accept what the Bible is saying. And, and compounding the tragedy of seeking to establish my own righteousness is that, that Paul says that, that when people lock in on this, it blinds them to a far better righteousness. The righteousness of God. Now, of course, God is perfectly righteous. That's one of His attributes. But, but Paul here is talking about something. Not, he's not just simply talking here about the character of God. No, no, instead, he is talking about a gift of righteousness that God gives to us. So, Maybe you're still in chapter 3, 
Paul says in verses 21 and 22, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. So we've talked about this a lot as we worked our way through Romans, that that when Paul uses this phrase, the righteousness of God, he's not generally telling us about God's character. No, instead, he's talking about a gift, and, and you can see that very clearly there in verse 22, that this is a righteousness that God gifts to us, and he does so by faith. So, so what does that mean? I mean, how can God gift righteousness to us? Well, of course, the answer that, that Paul explains in, in later in Romans 3 is that Jesus came to earth and he lived a perfect life. He, he died on the cross to, to pay the penalty for our sins. He rose from the dead. And, and when he did all of those things, he provided a salvation for us. He provided the ability to for us to be credited with righteousness. And so, to become a Christian, to be born again, to become God's child, simply involves the fact that by faith, I give up on trying to establish my own righteousness, and I instead rest in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. I receive it by faith. And when I trust in God, when I believe the gospel, when I say I can't save myself, but I trust in you, that perfect righteousness that Jesus provided is credited to me. I'm forgiven of my sins, and I become God's child. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it is the best news in all the world, right? The absolute best news is in all the world is that I can be saved by faith. It's a gift of God. So the question then is, well, If God's provided this incredible gift, why doesn't everyone receive it? I mean, you know, I mean, you see, you know, new believers deal with this all the time, right? You you, you understand the gospel. It's the best thing you've ever heard. It's awesome. And then you think, man, I mean, every, you know, the moment people hear this, they're going to want it. And then you start telling people and they get mad at you. They don't like it. They're not responding the way you think they should. Why, why do they do that? Well, the reason is pride and stubbornness. As sinners are so consumed with, with establishing their own righteousness that they won't admit that they can't do it. You ever got started on something and you know, you're, you know, men, you're working on a, a, you know, fixing something or doing something, your wife says, maybe we should call a repairman. And you're like, no, I got it. And uh, you keep trying, and I, I think you might need some help, hon. No! And that's how so many people are when it comes to religion and, and to a relationship with God. They refuse to admit that they can't do it on their own. They refuse to humble themselves before God. And you know, I think it's interesting that, that returning to, to chapter 10, I mean, how does Paul say that we receive this righteousness? He says that the Jews did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. They did not submit to the idea that they could not earn it themselves and cast themselves on God. And so to become a Christian, you have to admit the fact that you can't earn it. 
And you have to trust in, in what God did alone as the hope of your salvation. And so that brings me to my third challenge, which is, very simply, receive salvation by faith. And look at what Paul says in verse 4. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Now, there's actually a lot of debate about what exactly Paul means by the end of the law here, and, and I'm not going to get into all of that. I think, rather, uh, to me, it's, it's fairly clear what Paul means by the end of the law when you look at this verse in comparison to verses 2 and 3. So, so verses 2 and 3 said that the Jews tried to establish their own righteousness instead of resting in the perfect righteousness of God. And then verse 4 is simply saying that, that when I humble myself like God wants and I believe the gospel, it is the end of trying to establish my own righteousness before God. I stop trying to to earn the favor of God, and I rest in His finished work. Now, to become a Christian is to become like a child in my heavenly Father's hands. I have simple confidence that God's grace is enough to save me, and I don't need to earn His acceptance. I have it in Christ, and so I just rest in Him. And so are you resting in Christ like that? Christ alone. You know, uh, I mean, have you, have you stopped trusting in yourself? Stop trying to earn God's rest and favor and instead just trusted in Him? Or are you still just bound and determined? There's, there's got to be something I can do to make myself acceptable to God. I have to earn His favor. I mean, right there in your seat. You can admit, God, I'm a sinner. And I will never be righteous enough to be saved. And you can cast yourself on Jesus. You can rest in Him and be born again. And that's, that's all you have to do is believe. Believe that and admit your sin to God. Rest in Christ. And so just talk to God. Admit your sin and receive Him. If you've never done that before. And then if you are saved, reading this story should drive every Christian to share the gospel. Because I would venture to guess that everyone in here knows someone that fits verses 2 and 3. That They are convinced that they're good enough. They're trying to be good enough. And they're headed towards hell. Because they're blinded to the truth, even though it's right under their noses. And we need to pray for their salvation. And we need to plead with them to, to bow before the righteousness of God. So, so the first major assertion of our text is that salvation is by faith, not by works. And then the second major assertion is that salvation is near, not far. It is near, not far. Now, now verses 5 through 8, once again, are going to contrast righteousness by law with righteousness by Excuse me, by faith. So, so notice, first of all, that um, law relies on works. Law relies on works. So, so verse 5 says, For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. Now, now he, he mentions Moses here, and, and what he's doing here is Paul is loosely quoting uh, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. 
And so that verse says, you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Now, now and then he follows that, that promise with, with a number of, of laws about moral purity. And so Leviticus 18 is a kind of a really important chapter uh, going through what defines immorality and what is moral uh, as far as the sexual relationship goes. And, and so he goes through all of that, and, and what he's saying there is, is that if you obey these laws, then, then, then God, then you will live by those laws. Now, it's important to emphasize that in the context of Leviticus 18, Moses is not saying that keeping these laws will get you eternal life. God is not saying that if you only ever have sex with your spouse, that you will go to heaven. That's not the point. No, no, rather, he actually ends the chapter by saying in verses 26 through 28, you are to keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not do any of these abominations. Speaking there of, of these immoral lifestyles. For the men of the land who, had, who have been before you, speaking of the Canaanites, have done all these abominations and the land has become defiled so that the land will not spew you out. Should you defile it as it has spewed out the nations which, has, which have been there, which have been before you. So, so what's going on here is, is, that, is that Moses is giving a promise related to temporal blessing. If you obey these laws and, and you walk in purity, you will remain in the land and God will bless you. If you disobey these laws, God will drive you out of the land and judge you. So, what is Paul's point in our text? Because in our text, he's not really talking about God's blessing in this life. He's talking about eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. You know, is he saying that somehow you could possibly earn your way to heaven? Well, he can't be saying that. Because he just said in verses 3 and 4, 2 and 3, that, that, that the Jews were wrong to seek salvation in the law. And as well, Romans 4 was very clear that in every age, the only way anyone has been justified before God is by faith. So, rather, what he's doing is he is simply pointing out that the law was a system of works. It was a system of works, and God's blessing to Israel under the law was based on obedience. If you obeyed the law, God would be near you and He would bless you. If they disobeyed the law, God would abandon them and curse them. And sadly, even though Christ has come, lots of people still think that's fundamentally how we relate to God. So people, there's lots of people that probably have shown up at a church today. They give money to the poor. They do good deeds. They, they say their prayers. They, they do all these various things because they want God to bless them. And they want to go to heaven someday. And if life is not going so well and things are difficult, then, then, then maybe they've done something to offend God. And so how can I buy back God's favor and, and get His blessing on my life again? And so for most people around the world, religion is just a big game of bargaining with God or the gods. I do things to keep Him happy, and I do things to keep Him from getting mad. It's all just a game of cat and mouse. But, but any religious system that depends on human righteousness is doomed to fail. Because, again, we are all sinners. 
And in fact, what's fascinating is that both God and Moses understood that Israel, that, that while, even while they were giving the law, they understood that Israel would not keep it. All right, keep your place here, but, but turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Deuteronomy chapter 31. And, and I'll just tell you right now, we're going to go on a little journey, and you're not immediately going to see how it relates to our passage. But trust me that we will get there, all right? So Deuteronomy chapter 31 and, and, and the book of Deuteronomy is, is Moses' last speech to the people before uh, he dies and before they enter the land of Canaan. So, so he is rehearsing the law to them. He has spent almost the whole book telling them to obey the law, what the law is. But notice what he says to Israel in verses 16 through 18 of Deuteronomy 31. It says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the strange gods of the land into the midst of which they are going and will forsake me and break my covenant which I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day and I will forsake them and hide my face from them and they will be consumed and many evils and troubles will come upon them so that they will say in that day, is it not because our God is not among us that these evils have come upon us? But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. Now, God's not very optimistic, is He? You know, imagine if you were getting married and you're staying at the altar thinking, well, my, we're getting married, but I know my spouse is going to be unfaithful. Like, you'd probably never get married. But, but here's God saying... You know, these are my covenant people. I'm taking them for myself, and I know that they are going to abandon me. I know that they are going to commit spiritual adultery and, and serve other gods, and I will judge them. And I'll send them into exile. And you know, that's a, that's a sober warning for all of us. That, that we can so easily look at God's Word, look at God's law, and think, yeah, I can do that. I can be religious and go to heaven someday. And, and God knew Israel couldn't possibly measure up he knew they were going to abandon him because sinners always do but go back a chapter to deuteronomy chapter 30 because that chapter promises that 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 rebellion will not be the end of the story i want to read verses 1 through 3 deuteronomy 30 verse 1 says so it shall be when all these things have come upon you and he's talked already uh, in chapter 29 about curses He says, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you. So so what's he saying there? You're going to to sin, and I'm going to send you into exile. He says, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from the captivity and have compassion on you. And will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So, so God says that someday they're going to be scattered, but then He's going to regather them. He's going to regather the nation. But that's not all. He says that I will regather you, and, and someday, God says, I will bring about a massive spiritual revival among my people. Look at what He says in verses 6 through 8. He says, moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. 
The Lord your God will inflict all these curses on your enemies and on those who hate you, who persecute you. And you shall again obey the Lord and observe all his commandments, which I command you today. So, so God says that the day is coming when, when Israel will not just have circumcised flesh. God says, I will circumcise your heart. I, I will change you from the inside out. And, and so you will not just know my law on the outside. I will give you a new heart to obey it. Now, now Jeremiah 31 uh, looks forward to that day and calls this the new covenant. So someday... God is going to transform Israel from the inside out. And God's not just going to give them a law. He's going to give them a heart to obey it. And then, right, we're getting close to getting to our text again. Notice the end result in verses 11 through 14. He says, For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it? that we may observe it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it, that we may observe it. But the word is very near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that you may observe it. So, so what is God saying there? He's saying that, that when God does this incredible work of circumcising their hearts, the word of God will be near to them. He will change them. It's not the, the God's law is not just going to be this overwhelming thing that they can't possibly live up to. It will be near to them because of their transformed nature. Now, now that has not happened yet in Israel, right? You don't look at Israel and see this people that, that love the gospel and love Jesus. But Romans 11 is going to say that someday God is going to do that. He is going to bring about a massive revival among his people and transform their hearts. But, returning to Romans 10, our text quotes those last few, or, or at least references, those last few verses that I just read. And it says that, that, that while God will, will finish this work someday in the future, Christ has already come, and Christ has brought about the conditions that are going to produce this revival someday. So, so look again at what he says in verses 6-8 through eight of our text. He says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And then he quotes from Deuteronomy 30. He says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. Now, now, that is a complicated quote, and I spent a lot of time on Tuesday this week trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. And, and it's complicated because Deuteronomy 30 doesn't say anything about Jesus. You know, I mean, you don't read Deuteronomy and think, oh yeah, it's talking about Jesus coming down from heaven, and then it's talking about Jesus rising from the dead. And so scholars have spent a lot of time debating what Paul's doing here and, and how he's using Deuteronomy 30. And I'm not going to answer every issue today or go through every viewpoint and said, I want to stay focused on the point that I believe Paul is making. So, so remember, all right, earlier in Deuteronomy 30, God promised that someday he's going to bring a great revival among the Jews. He's going to circumcise their hearts. And the verses that Paul quotes 
are saying that in that day, God's word will be near in the hearts of the Israelites. That's a glorious promise. A hope that God is going to work among His people. And Paul is saying that Christ is the key to that radical spiritual work. He lived a perfect life during His time here on earth. He died for our sins. He rose in victory. And Christ's finished work has made this radical heart change, this heart circumcision, available to everyone who believes. So, so again, right? God gave Israel that new covenant and God will fulfill it for them someday. But what Paul is saying is that this glorious day that God said is coming has come near. It's near. And the opportunity is there for you to be forgiven and to have a right relationship with God through Jesus. That day has come. And so that brings me to to the contrast. So so verse 5 said that law relies on works. But the contrast is, is that faith relies on grace. And that's really the point of the contrast between verses 5 and 6. Verse 5 said that if you live a life of legalism, you, you inherently relate to God based on works. But if you relate to God based on faith, verses 6 through 8 are saying you don't have to go up and find God in heaven because He came to you. You don't need to raise Jesus from the dead because He did it Himself. You know, I don't have to go find God or go earn His favor. No, instead, God has come to me. God came to us in Christ. He addressed our sins and He made it possible to save our souls. And so, I want to emphasize today that, that what we're talking about in this passage you know, is not, it's not describing just a little tweak to how you think about God. You know, that, that the gospel is just like 10 degrees from legalism. You know, like if you're trying to earn your salvation and you trust in Jesus, you're, you're going, you, know, you were going southwest, now you're going west. No. It is a 180. Because what God is saying is that when you become a Christian, you go from trusting in your own righteousness to get you to heaven to trusting in Christ alone. You rely completely on Him. I mean, works and grace are completely different ways to relate to God. And what is so awesome about this passage is that this wonderful grace is not unattainable. I think so many people, they look at the Bible the way I used to look at my seminary syllabi on the first day of class. You know, so, when I was in seminary, first day of the semester, you you go to all your classes and they give you this syllabi and, and ours were usually really thick and at the top of it was a list of everything you had to do that semester. And I'm a, an anxious planner, and so I'd look at all these things that I've got to get done over the next four months, and it was like, oh, this isn't going to happen. It's unattainable. There's no way I can get all these papers read or written, read all these books, do all this stuff. And so, what's the temptation? Why well, even try? Or maybe I need to drop a couple classes. It seems unattainable. And a lot of people see the commands of Scripture and a relationship to God as the same sort of thing. You know, I can't possibly obey all this. There's no way I could ever reach God. I'll never get to Him. But our text says that God came to us 
through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, God has brought a relationship with God near. That's the point of verse 8. He has brought this relationship near. So, So salvation is right there. Right there. God is holding it out to every sinner on the planet. And all I have to do to, to attain this relationship is stop trusting in my works and trust wholly and completely in Jesus. I mean, verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So, so you don't have to do something incredible to earn the favor of God. You don't have to keep doing incredible things to remain his child. No, this salvation is near and very attainable. Verse 13 just simply says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So have you done that? Have you done that? And maybe you've spent your whole life trying to measure up to God and never quite sure if you've done enough. Understand that you will never make it on your own. You will never be good enough to earn a relationship with God. But you don't have to. Because salvation is near. And Christ is calling you right now through His Word to believe the Gospel if you never have. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 2 says, Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So you don't need to wait. You, know, you don't need to like, well, well i got to go home. i gotta, I got to take care of these ten things over here before I can trust in Jesus. Now God says, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. The thief on the cross didn't have time to go clean up his life and make right all the things that he had done wrong. No, he just called on Christ. So don't wait. Just come to Jesus and rest in Him. And you can do what verse 9 says right there, right now in your seat. If, If you're head spinning and you've got questions and you're not quite sure you understand all this, then talk to someone afterwards and and get your questions answered. But please, believe on Christ. Do not leave today still trying to establish your own righteousness. No, leave resting in Jesus. And if you are saved, I, I hope that pondering this gospel compels you to go share it. Again, it should should break our hearts that so many people we know are still trying to earn a relationship with God. When God has made salvation near. And so, who has God put in your life that needs to hear the gospel? And pray for their salvation. Because God can change anyone. And then how can you go after them very soon with the gospel? All right, and that's important because, like, yeah, someday, perfect opportunity to arise and I'll share the gospel. No, how can you go after them soon? How can you, in the near future, start a conversation with this person about Christ? And maybe you could just share how God changed you. Maybe it starts with giving them a gospel tract, inviting them to church, or inviting their kids to Awana or something like that. Maybe you invite them to start doing a Bible study with you. You Don't just hope to get there someday. Make a plan. Urge people to believe. 
because there is salvation in Christ. Let's have everyone bow your head, close your eyes. We'll sing here in a moment, but before we do, I just want to ask a couple questions. You know, first of all, well, well, two things uh, I'll put into one. Have you, maybe in this service, believed on Christ for the very first time? Or do you need to believe on Christ? If you have questions about your soul, or God's really working on you, and, and you're seeing that you need to be saved, or you want to understand this, just raise your hand so that I can pray for you and seek you out after the service. Is there anyone like that? who needs to be saved, wants to be saved. I'd love to find you and talk with you afterwards. Anyone like that? All right, well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word and your truth. God, I pray that everyone here would leave today knowing that they are your child. And God, help us as Christians to go and to share the gospel with everyone around us. In Jesus' name, amen.